Hi, and welcome to episode 43 of Talking with Painters. I'm Maria Stolger, and this week I'm excited to present a special episode about the exhibition Salient Contemporary Artists at the Western Front. In January this year, I was lucky enough to be in Belgium and went on a day tour of what were the battlefields of the Western Front in World War I, around the town of Ypres. It was absolutely freezing that day and the tour guide took us around giving us shocking statistics about loss of life and describing the absolutely hellish conditions that those soldiers endured. And every few kilometres he'd point out shells and barbed wire which was still being unearthed a hundred years after the war. So I was very interested when I heard that a group of 12 of our best Australian artists had travelled to Belgium and France to those areas where the Western Front once was. They created work on plein air, uh, in their hotel rooms and in their studios when they got back, documenting their impressions of what they saw and found. The exhibition which has resulted has just started to travel around Australia starting at the New England Regional Art Museum in Armidale in New South Wales. In this episode you're going to hear from historian Brad Manera who had previously travelled with many of the artists to Gallipoli as well as artists Wendy Sharp, Amanda Penrose Hart and Ewan McLeod. They also fronted my camera and I made a short video about this exhibition so just go to Talking With Painters playlist on YouTube to see that. Uh, there's also a link to it on the website talkingwithpainters.com and there should also even be a link to it if you're listening through your podcast app and you just look at the notes attached to this episode. In the video Brad also explains the significance of the term salient which is a military term. And you'll see paintings we talk about in this episode. We're recorded in King Street Gallery Stockroom, which will explain any background noise you might hear. I started by asking Brad Manera about the impact of World War I on Australia. World War I was the first time the entire world went to war in, in recorded history. It killed 13, perhaps 20 million people. So it's an incredibly significant part of the world's history. And of course, for Australians, it occurs just 14 years after Federation. So it makes a major, it has a, an extraordinary impact on the development of Australia as a nation. In what way in particular? Well, look, I think it welded us together as a nation. Up until 1901, we were half a dozen separate British colonies around the edge of a massive continent at the far end of the world. And our army was formed on that basis. Each unit was locally raised. So each unit had a really strong local identity. These were groups of mates who'd gone to school together, they'd worked together, they joined up together. And so, you know, you've got extraordinary examples. My home state, Western Australia, for example, the 11th Battalion was formed in Western Australia. The commander of the battalion was the mayor of Kalgoorlie. Um, and, you know, all of the men were heads of the local chamber of commerce, or they were doctors down on Adelaide Terrace, or, you know, right through to the, uh, the private soldiers were clerks from Perth, stockmen from, from down south, um, miners from Kalgoorlie. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a community effort. Not a great deal of military skill, 
but a community effort. And what was the mood of the people who enlisted? Extraordinary enthusiasm for the British Empire. They didn't realise how nasty it was going to be. You know, in 1914, our, it was an election year. Our Prime Minister promised that we would support Britain to the last man and the last shilling and offered a, an expeditionary force of 20,000 people. By 1919, we had 60,000 dead. 330,000 Australians had served overseas. Now this is out of a population of less than 5 million. So the war changed Australia. And I think for the, those state-raised units that went away in 1914, by the time they came home in 1919 and 1920, after the campaigns initially on Gallipoli in 1915 and then on the Western Front from 1916 to 1918, they came back as Australians. You know, they saw themselves as a nation. The, the First World War welded our country together the way that Federation couldn't. Could you describe to me what you think the landscape would have looked like immediately after sure. the First World War? If I can define the Western Front, it was a scar across Europe that ran from the Swiss frontier through France and Belgium to the North Sea, nearly 700 kilometres of trenches and landscape that was just blown to pieces by shell fire. This is an age before mass aerial bombardment. And so they, they're using artillery, machine guns, poison gas, and eventually tanks and small aeroplanes uh, to try and break this deadlock of two parallel lines of trenches uh, protected by barbed wire, concrete blockhouses. Um, and so, you've got this, this battlefield that nobody had ever confronted before. Mm. And there are no flanks, there are just defended enemy positions. And it devastates the landscape for miles around those two lines of trenches that face each other across no man's land. How far apart would they have been? Oh, look, in some cases, uh, it depends on the topography. In some cases, they were tens of metres. Mm. In some cases, they were hundreds of metres. On the flat land, of Flanders, uh, the, the, the uh, opposing trenches could be up to a kilometre apart. But in the more rugged country, um, or around bends in the river, like in some parts of the Somme, they could be 20, 30, 40 metres apart. So they can hear the enemy singing. They can hear the enemy shouting orders. They can hear them cocking their weapons. You know, the, these, it's, and, and they're living on top of each other. And what sort of weapons are we talking about? The First World War marked a revolution in the way people kill each other. Um, for much of the 19th century, muzzle-loading firearms were used. They fired slowly. They were largely inaccurate. And uh, so in the First World War, for the first time, every soldier on that battlefield had a rifle with sights, most of them were magazine fed and indeed um, um, they, there was an increasing presence of automatic weapons for the first time on any battlefield. Uh, there were flamethrowers, there were poison gas, tanks, aeroplanes. Um, you know, we really learnt a great deal about this, about how to kill each other en masse on an industrial scale. And it happened on the far side of the world. You know, how do we make sense of the First World War for the families back here in Australia when they're sending their sons and daughters 
12,000 miles away to France and Belgium. And of course, it wasn't until the 1960s that Australia began to bring its war dead home. And so where all of the young men and women that we lost in South Africa from 1899 to 1902, from during the Great War from 1914 to 1918, from the Second World War, from Korea, they all lie beneath foreign fields. Mm. And so, you know, the fact that our young men and women are buried on the far side of the world, um, it makes it very important that we bring memories and impressions of the war back to Australia. And I think that's where this exhibition fits into part of our national discourse mm. over the past century. Mm. You know, since the Great War, we've been sending artists to the war um, and, and, and to battlefields subsequently to bring back their impressions. Ewan McLeod won the Gallipoli Art Prize in 2009. He talks here about how having a historian on the trip makes a difference to making sense of the landscape. Going there with a historian, I think, gives you so much more, really does. In what way? Well, it just puts it all into perspective. I mean, you're in, a, you're in this nondescript little field, um, looking at a tiny little village in the distance, and the historian is able to tell you what happened there. You know, that thousands and thousands and thousands of guys died in that spot, mm. attacking that hill, you know. Mm. And the, giving you a, the context of what it might have been like at that time, which would, was hell, you know. Mm. I mean, they, he said, imagine this field, just mud, all mud, and rain, driving rain, and machine guns firing con constantly. Um, for every square metre there was so many killed, I can't remember the statistic, but horrendous statistics, you know. So, for me, personally, I think there was something about dealing with a subject matter bigger than myself, bigger than, you know, like something that uh, it has a lot of significance for a lot of different people. It, it was, it's something that um, is really meaningful and how we respond to it and how we have responded to it, I think is very, very important. Mm. Um, memorials about remembering and how we remember. Um, but I think it's important to, to think beyond just, oh, a whole lot of guys went over there and died. Yeah. And a whole lot of um, people back in Australia and New Zealand were traumatised for generations uh, through that loss and through the scarring. and. Um, damage that occurred, um, you know, I think it, it's had a huge impact. They say that, um, that trauma can last two or three generations. A lot of, a lot of guys came back pretty, pretty um, stuffed up by it, yeah, um, well, physically yeah. and mentally stuffed, stuffed up by it. And um, I think that probably has had an effect on us, you know, on, our gen on, on um, us directly, mm. through you, our grandparents probably. Well, on that point, uh, you have an ancestor that died there where you, where you visited. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, and I always remember seeing his photograph in my grandmother's house and not really knowing much about him or not really being that interested. I mean, it was a, I suppose it was something you saw in a lot of houses. You'd see this photograph of you know, a soldier in, a, in his uniform. Um, but before I went, uh, I probably... Was her, her brother? So it was my, it was my great uncle. Um, it was her... Um, her husband's brother um, that had died. Um, I think I got that right, yep. Um, 
and it really didn't, wasn't that interested. And I remember going to Gallipoli and thinking, well, I don't have any kind of relatives that are, um, went to Gallipoli. But my uncle, who lives in London, sent me a lot of information on, on this guy, who was um, Roy MacLeod, who my father was actually named after. So quite significant. And these letters were, he was a 22-year-old, and he was... Um, Oh, he's a bit of a bloody idiot, really. He was totally foolhardy. You know, he was a bomber. He'd, he, at night, he'd crawl over into the, um, the, the enemy trenches and they'd try and kill as many Germans as they could. And then uh, on the way back, they'd, be, they'd have the crap bombed out of them. And the letters are uh, sort of talk of a man who, I don't know whether he was totally brave or totally silly or a bit of both. And you realise the kind of guys that went over there, they were so young. And he only lasted a couple of weeks, I think he... Um, he um, but the letters, reading these letters is just kind of like, whoa. And you realise it's not that long ago. And it's he was... What, so he, did he describe what he was going through? Absolutely. He, he, he described the carnage and, you know, would say things like, oh, I almost got it last night, you know, almost bought it last night. And, um, and he also talks about um, hiding in bomb, bomb craters, you know, full of water and uh, overnight. And, you know, they're, they're sort of written a bit biggles-like, but boy, they're, they're, they're very descriptive. So I think I had this idea in my head when I went there of him. And it, um, we actually went to where he was last found, well, where his, he had been last seen, his remains were never found. They, um, my uncle has a fob watch that I think was probably taken off the body, but um, like a lot of those guys, I guess, another round of artillery went through and the bodies were churned up into the mud. Mm, Pretty yeah. gruesome. You talked earlier about the sort of contradiction between what had happened and the landscape as it is now. When you embarked on this body of work, how did you deal with that? I certainly did a lot of research. I, I read a lot. Um, read a lot of uh, read a lot of books. The same in Gallipoli. I read a lot of books. I, I found it really interesting that the, the one book on Gallipoli I read before I went and didn't make so much sense. As soon as I'd been there, it made a lot more sense um, to, to when you think of the terrain and what happened. I mean, it'll, they'll often talk about, you know, they almost got to this place and you think, well, why didn't they get all the way there? And then you realise why. So did a lot of research, did a lot of thinking about it. I guess you're, um, you're open to experiences. You're thinking about it, thinking about how you might go about it. But a lot of it is impossible until you're there. And then how does it affect you and how does it influence you? Mm. While I was there, I did a lot of just landscapes, works on paper. You know, none of them are particularly anything other than as a, a way of looking. Mm. And then when I got back, I certainly started thinking about how I'd deal with it. And one of the places I dealt with was the bomb crater and imagining the smoking bomb crater, I suppose, where my great uncle possibly perished. My next guest was Wendy Sharp, who was an official war artist to East Timor in 1999, and she's also been a member of the Council of the War Memorial. She starts here by talking about her painting of artist Evelyn Chapman, who travelled to the ruins shortly after the war ended. I saw a photograph of Evelyn, Evelyn Chapman, who um, 
is always billed as the first Australian woman to have gone around that area, I think, and um, just after just after all the hostility, hostilities had finished, and to have painted. There is a famous photograph of her. If you look it up, it's quite amazing photograph yeah. of her sitting, wearing just a First World War type clothing, big picture hat, sitting at a portable easel and painting and smiling at the camera. And you would expect from her sitting there with her picture hat that she's painting some flowers or a lovely scene. But actually, she's painting the most shocking, shocking ruins of a church, which is a medieval church, which is just about to fall down. Mm. Um, it was it was actually really it was really interesting because she was there just after. Yeah, it's very unusual for a woman. Too. It's very unusual. Well, her father was involved in war graves, so he was going around checking on all of that. I think you know I'm I'm aware also that we're now coming back a hundred years later. We're not in ruins. We're looking for vestiges. We're looking for vestiges which are surprisingly still present. Mm. But what it, sort of vestiges? Well, did actually, you find? there is one. There's a there is one particular church that is was left in ruins, and you know this is a, 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 I think probably from being on the council of the memorial, I was I'm particularly aware of um, how you memorialise things and various controversies about how you build a memorial to something. People, stakeholders, people get annoyed. I don't like this. I don't like that. What do you do? Mm. And. Uh, there, there is one church that we saw in particular which is actually left in ruins and that's actually quite moving. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are things like that. Yeah, what did you think of um, Menon Gate, which is a major war memorial um, for the Commonwealth uh, soldiers? It's in Ypres, which is in Belgium. The Menon, the Menon Gate is incredible. So this is a huge um, memorial kind of arch which uh, was built in 1927. There is a big archway and it was originally a gated city as all those medieval cities mostly were. And you walk through this on the way to Menon, which is a town out of it, that's why it's called that. But anyway, what they have done is they have written the names of all of the missing. And apparently, when they find people, they take their name off, which is, and they're still finding people. And now they've got DNA, so they can yeah, find it right. more. But it's very moving, every night, they have, uh, they have a bugle call mm, and they the have a post. last post and they, it's mm. very, it's very moving. I think they've done that since um, 1928 or something. They have, they have. Yeah. And, and it's, um, you, you know, you imagine, it's hard to imagine, but someone back here in Australia um, who their son or their husband or their whoever, brother or whatever, never found mm. their body isn't they can't have a picture of the grave I don't know what they were told by the war graves here but at least they know that even if their body isn't there at least their name is recorded there at least yeah. that's something it's so that so must have meant so much well it's amazing how architecture can um, bring these feelings up uh, were there any other memorials that, that you remember yes another Another place that I found particular, I mean, we went to so many memorials and there's lots of interesting things, but the most moving thing that I saw, I suppose, besides the Menin Gate, was actually a German cemetery um, called Vladslow, which is um, in Belgium. And it's out in the forest, bright green as it is in Europe, forest, very dense, bright green grass, and rows of flat 
stones where all these mass burials are going off into the distance. And there is two incredible sculptures by Kathy Kollwitz, who's someone, who's a German artist whose work I've always really liked. They're sculptures of grieving parents. They are a sculpture of herself and her husband, Karl, kneeling down. She is clasping her hands to her chest with her head bowed as though she's just weighed down by grief and she can't keep her head up. Mm -hmm. He is leaning back stiffly with his arms folded, trying to keep himself together. It's, they're really incredible, powerful human images of grief. Mm -hmm. And they are looking down on the grave of their son, Peter, but there are other men in there, but they are also looking down on all of the young men that are buried there. And they are, it's a portrait of them, yeah. but it's all parents. I've done paintings of it and drawings, but it's actually these incredible sculptures, so moving and so powerful. And I think actually far more, there's nothing remotely triumphant about it. I mean, it's a German cemetery, but really they, they're grieving, it could be, it's grieving over anyone. These are all young men. That's right. It's and uh, did you find that uh, when you came back and created your works, did you find you were drawn to a particular palette or a darker palette? Yeah, no, no. I, I actually, went, after I'd been uh, on the Western Front, I was actually working in Paris because I do have a, a place in Paris. And I was working directly, making small paintings as studies while it was still in my mind. Um, looking at the drawings and the little watercolours and things that I'd done, but working from that. I became, I think, that I wanted to revisit my love of German expressionism, which is something that's always in my work anyway, but I felt that I wanted some of that intensity back into it. I certainly, which is why, you know, they're, they're, they're mostly in very strong, intense colour. Mm. I didn't want it to feel soft and attractive, I wanted it to be jarring and intense. Amanda Penrose Hart won the Gallipoli Art Prize last year and I asked whether her recent trip to France and Belgium was different to her experience of painting in Gallipoli. Oh yeah, completely different, absolutely completely different. I set off with my little kit thinking, oh yeah, you know, it's an extension of the Gallipoli trip. It'll be sort of similar. Uh -uh. No, one was brown muddy fields of France. Lots of green, of course, too. But Gallipoli was a coastline. Oh yeah. Um, you know, like Corby is sort of right in the middle of France. It's right up on the border with Belgium. You know, we were nowhere near any water or coastline. And so after I'd been there for five weeks, because I was in Dijon and Creancy, um, no water anywhere. So the only time I got to see any water was the Somme. And I like to paint around rivers and coastlines and things like that. So a lot of my paintings were the Somme. And oh, so, so there's beautiful, a river, beautiful there's river. A river through that. Yeah, right. yeah, and it's go, it's very wide and patchy in some areas. Mm. In other areas, it becomes very, very narrow. And so, if you look at a map and you see the Somme, it's incredibly extensive. And so, if the bus took us, you know, near the river, that was exciting for me. Mm. Could be because I'm from Brisbane and there's a river in Brisbane, <laughs> and we're nowhere near the coast. <laughs> was uh, it like strategic for mm. like the? The war, the the river. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the Germans would be on one side, mm. and we'd be on the other. So often it was a point where people couldn't cross over, mm. or people would take refuge 
near the river. Mm. You could hide in those areas. Loads of trees, of course, near a river. So, you know, it was, uh, well, while we were there a hundred years later, of course, it was very, very green and lush anywhere near the river. So it seemed, you know, almost uh, it would camouflage an entire town where these huge trees were. Yeah. But in nothing like Gallipoli. Gallipoli was spiky bushes and that hard mm. coastal vegetation. And of course there was the surf and the sea and beautiful, you know, the, you know, we went up the Black Sea and completely different. Yeah. France was incredibly flat. And when we looked out of the bus window, it was just a, a patchwork, you know, a quilt of colours, pinks and browns, white, a lot of limestone, and then the amazing fields of um, canola. So it was blinding, the yellow was blinding, it was just beautiful. So I've tried to put that yellow into some of my paintings. Yeah. So lovely we were there in that season. And was it, was it hard to sort of visualise what it would have been like when it's so sort of beautiful oh. like that? It was ridiculous. We had a guide up the front of the bus, you know, who was doing her best to explain to, you know, novices like me about where, you know, the front line was. So we would be looking over 4,000 hectares of farmland and she'd sort of wave her arm around and go, oh, there's the front line there and, you know, how you would cope with that as somebody fighting and know where the front line is, you know, without being given maps and, and things. I mean, she just sort of waved her arm casually and it, it, it didn't really mean that much to me. Mm. I really should go back again and have another look. And we just saw so many graveyards and so many front lines. And as we went from France to Belgium, of course, because we, we did both. Mm. And it was two weeks of it every day. It was uh, overwhelming. One of the German graveyards we went to, I thought, oh God, look at all the headstones, look at the, all those flat plates, they were flat, it was very subtle, black crosses, um, thousands and thousands of them in this uh, sort of garden. And then when you went up and read the plates, there were actually four names on each plate, so there were four men buried or remembered on each plate, not just one. Mm. And then we were told that there were other big mass graves where there were just you know, hundreds of, of men in, in the one pit, because of course they lost uh, more people than we did. Did you do much plein air painting as in, like, did you use gouache most of the time? What sort of thing would you do? Yeah, I borrowed some gouache off some of the others because I didn't go very well equipped, I didn't think. I, I did a lot of drawing, I took some dry materials with me and to be perfectly honest, I left all my oil paints in Creancy where I'd done the, you know, the other project that I was doing first. Oh, yeah. uh, they were too heavy to take on the trip and I had all my liquids and things and I left them all there and I thought, nope, I'm not gonna take them. I'll just use gouache, some watercolor and some drawings. So I did do a few, I, I did a lot of studies and from then I did the these bigger paintings when I got back. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to this episode. The other nine artists involved in this exhibition are Deirdre Bean, Harry Fasher, Paul Furman, Michelle Hiscock, Ross Laurie, Steve Lopez, Ian Maher, Idris Murphy and Luke Skaberis. There's also a website for the exhibition, salientwesternfront.com. 
If you'd like to see the video, just go to YouTube and you can subscribe to the YouTube channel while you're there. You can also subscribe to this podcast, as you probably know, either through your podcast app or through the website. The show is also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Hope you can join me next time for the next episode of Talking with Painters. The Ypres salient was remembered by Australians and indeed everybody that fought there as the place of nightmare because Belgium has a very high water table. It needs to be constantly drained. And of course, when you're fighting a battle, particularly one that is dominated by shell fire, then all of that drainage, all of that reclaimed land is destroyed. And so the water table rises. Men couldn't dig trenches without them filling up with water. Underground dugouts constantly had to be pumped. So soldiers during the fighting in the Ypres salient were usually doing it ankle deep, knee deep, sometimes waist deep in water. And usually when we say water, it meant mud. Less than 20% of those who died in the Ypres salient have known graves because the mud swallowed them.